From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. This year, staying well and preventing colds and flu is more important than ever. Not only is it expected to be a worse than average flu season, we're also entering another COVID winter. So let's talk about all the things that we know really work to prevent colds and flu in adults and kids, from the practical to the pharmaceutical to the nutritional and herbal, so that you're not sorting through information and misinformation on the internet, not knowing what to take, what to trust, and what you can really do that can really make a difference. But first, what's a cold? What's the flu? And what's all the fuss really about? Both colds and flu are caused by common viruses that circulate among us seasonally, particularly in the colder months. And contrary to common misconceptions in how we might say, I have the flu if we have a fever and a runny nose, cold and flu are not the same thing. The common cold is a benign, though really annoying and uncomfortable, self-limited set of symptoms caused by members of several families of viruses, including rhinovirus and coronavirus, which are milder cousins of the big scary one that we've been facing for the past couple of years. Symptoms include nasal congestion, discharge, runny nose, a little bit of mucus, sneezing, scratchy or sore throat, cough, low-grade fever, headache, and fatigue. And it typically lasts five to seven days. Colds don't generally come with any serious consequences in otherwise healthy people. However, in kids, They can be accompanied by ear infections or secondary bacterial infections, like deeper infections in their chest, but that's still pretty uncommon for most people. Influenza, or the flu, which is simply short for influenza, is an acute respiratory illness similar to the cold, which is an acute respiratory illness, just means it's in the upper respiratory passages. But this is caused by either influenza A or influenza B, which are viruses that occur in outbreaks and epidemics worldwide, mainly during the late autumn and winter, which is generally late October through March in the Northern Hemisphere. However, in recent years, we have seen persistence of the flu and even some serious resurgences of virulent strains well into May, possibly a result of climate changes. If you live in the Southern Hemisphere, then it's in your cold season or flu season. So it's the opposite time of the year when it's your cold months, which is really interesting because part of how vaccinations are made is the pharmaceutical companies are actually getting strains from the Southern Hemisphere. And then those are made into strains for the Northern Hemisphere as vaccines, because we know that whatever follows in one hemisphere that year for strains is probably going to be the strains that we see in the other hemisphere in the same year. 
Prior to COVID-19, the flu was one of the most feared infections due to pandemics that have historically killed millions of people in a short time. For example, the Spanish flu in the early 1900s, that was global and killed millions of people. And more recent scares with things like swine flu, H1N1, and other forms of avian flu. Flu symptoms may be mild, but generally it causes substantial aches, fever, chills, headache, cough, and sore throat that can make you feel miserable for at least three days and often up to seven days and can lead to fatigue for a couple of weeks after. While COVID now may make the flu seem trivial in comparison, the flu shouldn't be underestimated as an illness. The CDC estimates that the flu has resulted in anywhere from 9 to 41 million cases a year 140,000 to three quarters of a million hospitalizations per year, and 12 to 52,000 deaths annually between the years 2010 and 2022. So it's a significant illness that has personal costs, public health costs, and some significant implications. The way to differentiate can be based on symptoms, or if you go to your doctor, you can get a flu swab, and that will tell you if it comes back positive if you have the flu. While anyone can become very sick as a result of the flu, some individuals are at greater risk of complications from the flu, including very young children, pregnant women, and people with chronic medical conditions, including poorly controlled diabetes, lung disease, autoimmune conditions, heart disease. All of these folks are at greater risk for complications. And with the autoimmune conditions, it's particularly if people are immunosuppressed. So just because you have a thyroid problem doesn't mean that you're at greater risk. It's if you're typically very immunosuppressed or on immunosuppressive medications. In children, the flu can lead to complications, including ear and sinus infections and pneumonia. And in pregnant people, high fever. And you can head over to my website and find the article on Tylenol in pregnancy, where I talk more about fever in pregnancy can be a problem for the developing embryo or fetus. So those are groups that can have higher risks of complication from getting the flu. When it comes to cold and flu season, an ounce of prevention is truly worth a pound of cure. But what really works? Let's cut to the chase on the best evidence-based approaches that you can start anytime to boost your immunity and do your best to stay well throughout the cold and flu season, whether you're doing this for yourself, your whole family, your children, etc. Before we dive into the six approaches to cold and flu prevention that I want to share with you, I want to address the elephant that's usually in the room in a discussion like this, or which you're thinking about as you're listening to me talk, which is, hmm, what does Dr. Aviva have to say about flu vaccinations and medications that you might take at the onset of flu? When it comes to cold prevention, there are no vaccines or medications for prevention. So when it comes to treatment, the medical treatments are limited to those things that are for common symptoms and discomforts like Tylenol or ibuprofen for fever and headache. So there's all the more reason to boost your immunity with natural prevention for the cold. When it comes to the flu, there are medical options for prevention. Receiving the flu vaccine for that season, and again, it changes annually because the strains of flu that we're exposed to change each year, or taking a medication like oseltamivir or Tamiflu 
within the first 48 hours of symptoms should you have flu-like symptoms during flu season. Whether to receive the flu vaccine is a very personal decision, which in addition to your personal preferences, should ideally take two main factors into consideration. And those include your risk of flu consequences for yourself or for whomever you're making this decision based on their immune status, age, concurrent medical conditions, or whether you're pregnant or they're pregnant, and the risk of exposing others, for example, if you're a healthcare worker or a teacher. Flu vaccine effectiveness varies each year, and in recent years has ranged from an efficacy of as low as 24% to a maximum of actually only 67%. That's because some years, the vaccine manufacturers don't get the strains quite right. Or sometimes the strains don't match up by the time the vaccine is created and then the actual flu rolls around. Sometimes the immune system doesn't quite click into gear with a robust enough response to the vaccine. Keep in mind, however, that getting the flu vaccine, even if it doesn't fully prevent you from getting the flu because of low efficacy or low response, it may actually help reduce its severity if you do get sick. You do want to keep in mind that it takes 10 to 14 days after getting vaccinated to gain immunity. So if you've already been exposed or get exposed in that two-week window after getting the flu, the flu shot might not help you. However, you can get it again that year so or get a different strain, so it may still be beneficial. If you choose to get vaccinated for the flu or you're required to in order to keep your job, which is the case for so many healthcare workers and teachers, I recommend the single injection preloaded syringe as the lowest risk option. It's mercury free, whereas the multi-dose vial form, which is the most commonly used, it has some preservatives in it. And one of those preservatives is a small amount of something called thimerosal, which is a mercury derivative. And a lot of us want to avoid any heavy metals that we don't have to put into our bodies. So the single injection preloaded syringe is where the doctor just opens the package for you. It's one needle. It's already got the medication in it. And that's mercury free. There's another form, which is the live virus. And that's an intranasal spray. It's incredibly convenient. And I get why people want to get that. And I'm not suggesting that you don't get that. However, if you're pregnant, you cannot get that form. So it's not safe during pregnancy. And I will say, as controversial as this is, in my practice and in the medical group that I worked in for some years, we did see several cases of women, particularly, including one of those being a teenager, come with a new onset of an autoimmune condition that they did not have before or did not have any symptoms of before and that didn't run in the family after having received this live intranasal vaccine. So look, if you're high risk and that's the only option and you need to get vaccinated, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying, look, I've seen this. The scientific evidence doesn't support that, but I'm here to share the whole truth of what I know and what I experience. And sometimes data doesn't reveal itself until years or decades later. So if you have the option, go for that single injection preloaded. My secondary choice is actually the multivial. I would personally choose that over the live intranasal. Again, if you're pregnant, you can't get the live intranasal. 
and get it just knowing, you know, that that's that caveat if you need it. So there's another medication option, which is a medication that you take within 48 hours. And the most common one is called Oseltamivir or Tamiflu. That's its trade name. And this is a particularly interesting medication for me to talk to you about because there's been a spate of heavy politics surrounding this drug that I have been following for years now. The medication is a noraminidase inhibitor. It's used to reduce the duration and severity of symptoms when treatment is initiated after the onset of symptoms. And it's also used to prevent shedding of the virus, which can infect others even when illness has passed. As I said, it's supposed to be given within 48 hours of the onset of flu symptoms to be effective in otherwise healthy people. The manufacturer and the medical community have endorsed this medication's effectiveness and safety for years. But maybe this endorsement hasn't been warranted. It seems that for about the past 10 years, not only has the data on safety and effectiveness been questionable, but the data on the pharmaceutical has been suppressed from public release. The manufacturer has publicly refused to release data and major actions by the British Medical Journal, editor-in-chief, and this happens to be my favorite medical journal in the world, she published letters to the manufacturer documenting its lack of forthcoming responses in the journal after they refused to release that data to her to try to force their hand to disclose their evidence for safety and efficacy. Not only did she do that, but the Cochrane Library, one of the best known and most relied upon evidence-based repositories of medical data used by physicians all around the world for research and clinical evidence, were unable to get this company to disclose their data. Only recently has data been obtained And according to a leading Yale researcher and former professor of mine, Harlan Krumholtz, MD, the complete evidence paints a much less positive picture of oseltamivir than was presented to regulators, policymakers, clinicians, and the public. Important benefits were overestimated and harms underreported. In particular, The review found no compelling evidence to support claims that this drug reduces the risk of complications of flu, such as pneumonia and hospital admission, claims that were used to justify international stockpiling of the drug. So all told, I'm going to tell you it straight, I'm not a Tammy flu fan, and I don't always recommend it to my patients. However, again, you have 48 hours from the onset of symptoms, so you can take a wait-and-see approach and see how you do in that first 48 hours. If you want to, you can always take the medication initially to nip it in the bud. And again, if you're high risk, it may put you in a different category for considering the risks of the medication. Regardless of whether you get vaccinated or plan to take Tamiflu should you get the flu, it's still important to shore up your immune system intrinsically to prevent colds, to bridge the gap in vaccination efficacy, and to actually improve the likelihood that your vaccine will work if you do get it, as you'll learn about in just a minute. 
A healthy immune system also goes beyond cold, flu, and even possibly COVID-19 prevention. It's important for maintaining a low inflammation profile. Look, our immune system is responsible for preventing and protecting us from infection. And a little bit of inflammation is part of that process. But so many of us, particularly in developed nations, in Western wealthy nations, are living with chronic inflammation. And it's estimated that one in four deaths from chronic disease is really due to the underpinnings of inflammation that underlie these conditions. So preventing inflammation by supporting a healthy immune system with all of the strategies that I'm going to share with you is important for preventing pain and chronic illness. It's important for cardiovascular and brain health, metabolism, for healthier sleep, mind, mood, and hormones. So let's get you started on practical steps you can take specifically for cold and flu prevention and overall immune support. As always, when I'm giving you a brain download of information where I might have specific supplements or doses or things that you want to remember, Keep on doing whatever you're doing. If you're out for a run, if you're on your treadmill, if you are in the car taking your kiddos to school, whatever you're doing right now, keep on doing it. And just remember that you can always go back to avivaram.com, how to boost your immune system, and find the article that's associated with this podcast so that you can have it for reference. You can later on in the day, if you decide to do some of the supplements, for example, You can place your order online or go to your local health food store and you can have this year after year for cold and flu prevention, which of course I will update should anything change. So I want to share six ways to boost your immune system to prevent colds and flu. As a doctor with a 35 plus year background in integrative medicine, natural common sense DIY approaches to supporting our immunity make 100% sense to me. Because why not take practical, simple steps to support our immune health and in the least potentially reduce five to seven days of having a miserable cold or worse, the flu with its aches and pains and all the stuff that comes with that. If there's any glimmer that these things will help and we know that definitively many of them do, it's worth doing. In fact, for me, the basics like minimizing my exposure, getting better sleep, and eating well are a no-brainer and a way of life. When it comes to the supplements, some like vitamin D and vitamin C are simple, affordable, and in the recommended doses are really safe. So again, a simple, easy yes. When it comes to adding in additional supplements, whether it's medicinal mushrooms or echinacea, et cetera, I'd say gauge your budget and also your history with cold and flu. If you're in my practice and you're that person who looks at someone who sneezes and is sick the following week, I'm like, yes, let's go full on with this, you know, cold flu prevention toolkit. And if you're inclined and have no contraindications to the herbs and supplements, using the whole toolkit I share or picking and choosing according to your needs, preferences, budget, and your personal inclination toward taking supplements is totally appropriate. So step number one, or toolkit tool number one, is to minimize your exposure. I know this may seem basic, especially after the last couple of years, but it's actually super important as a starting place. 
All the things we learned to do during the pandemic, from elbow bumps to hand washing to mask wearing, are as relevant now. Part of why this particular year has been anticipated to be a worse flu year is because we've all been holed up for the past couple of flu years without getting as much exposure. So it's thought that we may actually be more at risk. So for those of you who are in high-risk categories, if you are in a crowded environment or a small space like an elevator with three other people, whether you're high-risk or not, you may choose to put on a mask. If you're traveling by airplane, for example, you may choose to put on a mask. You may choose not to. But it's one thing to absolutely consider. Colds and flu, like other viruses, are spread when an infected person coughs, sneezes, or talks within six feet of another. It's also speculated that the flu may be spread via even smaller particles at a much farther distance. So again, wearing a mask, even in a more open space like your grocery store, may be reasonable as a precaution, particularly if you're in a higher risk category for adverse flu events. The thing with cold and flu, though, is they're not only airborne. They spread through something called fomites, meaning the things we touch, like door handles, elevator buttons, a shared pen when you sign a receipt at the grocery store or a restaurant, other people's hands when you shake someone's hands, you name it. So to reduce your risk of contracting either the cold or flu, stick with the elbow bump and try to stay clear of hugs and handshakes. Wash your hands with soap and water or use hand sanitizer regularly, particularly when you're out and about. This is not just a COVID thing, y'all. This is a cold and flu thing. And definitely if you've shaken hands with someone or have been in a public place where you've touched a lot of things, you've gone up an escalator, you've been in the grocery shop and handling produce or somebody, you know, move your produce along the conveyor belt. Now they're putting it in your grocery bag or your box and now you're taking it home and you're unpacking it. Or keep in mind, if you've been working at a shared keyboard at work or at the library or have exchanged money with someone. So keep that hand sanitizer around and wash your hands with soap and water. How do you wash your hands effectively? For 20 seconds with soap and water, singing the happy birthday song, which takes about 20 seconds to sing. Or using an alcohol hand sanitizer, you use the hand sanitizer in an ample amount and then you Rub your hands all over until the hand sanitizer is dry. You don't just put it on there. Rub your hands for a second and then think you're protected. Using these methods can significantly cut down your risk of getting sick and bringing colds and flu home to your family. Also, as I mentioned, we touch our faces a lot. Try to avoid habitually touching your eyes, your nose, or your mouth, which is such a common way we spread germs to ourselves, to each other, and to our kids. It's really not so easy. If you start to pay attention to how many times you subconsciously or inadvertently touch your face during the day, it's actually quite shocking. Finally, as part of this first aspect of the toolkit, do your part, please, to prevent exposing others. If you have symptoms of what might be a cold or the flu, stay home. If it's your kids, keep them home from school. Look, I understand that this can be really tough to do. I was raised by a single mom. When I was sick, I either had to stay home by myself by the time I was in third grade or more, or it meant she had to miss a day of work. But the benefits to not spreading illnesses to others is just such a public good. If you can, please try to do that. The other thing is to keep in mind that your doctor is probably ignoring the advice to stay home if sick. Most of us were trained to show up, 
literally, unless we're practically dying. Your doctor, your healthcare provider may be incredibly well-meaning and incredibly dedicated to showing up for work, even when they're not feeling well, but they may also be some of our biggest unwitting major germ spreaders, meaning whenever possible, telemedicine may be really advantageous during cold and flu season. And don't hesitate to ask your provider to please wash their hands before they examine you, to clean their stethoscope with some alcohol swab before they examine you, to make sure that the surfaces in the office where your hands are going to be, all that is totally reasonable. So we have to really be our own advocates for these things. Toolkit number two. This is probably going to surprise you, but getting enough exercise all year round, but especially in cold and flu season, is not just good for your cardiovascular health and your mood and all the things. It's actually really great for your immune system. I was fortunate to spend six years on a major medical advisory board. And one of the members of the board was a world leading exercise physiologist. In fact, one of the most published exercise physiologists in the world, David Neiman, who's a professor of biology at Appalachian State University. And his entire field of study is the powerful connections between exercise, diet, and immunity. So I often got to hear his incredible research firsthand and hot off the press. One study that he and his team did that was published in 2011 based on three months of data that was collected from a 1,000 adults in North Carolina where their study center is, found that the most significant factor that emerged in terms of prevention of respiratory infections, so cold and flu, even over stress and diet, was amount of exercise. Before you get intimidated, listen to this. Physical activity for five or more days per week was associated with a 43% reduced risk of upper respiratory infection and also severity of infection compared to exercising less than one day each week. But even exercising for just 20 minutes a week, even just a brisk walk, was better for infection prevention than no exercise at all. However, and this is really important, David Neiman's work, which is focused on susceptibility of athletes to viral infection post-intensive competitive events. We know that people who do marathons, all these types of triathlon events, et cetera, et cetera, are much more apt after they've competed. So they do their training, they do their competing, and then they hit pause to recover for a while within that first week. They are really susceptible to viral infection. So it's led to some research that shows us that there's a Goldilocks effect. While enough exercise boosts immunity, too much exercise can be counterproductive because it temporarily suppresses immunity. Now, there's no quantification of what counts as too much exercise. So you have to pay close attention to yourself and what your threshold is and hit pause before you hit that wall, especially during cold and flu season. And lean into a combination of forms of physical activity. So make sure that you're adding in some yoga or Pilates or gentle walking rather than just those forms that are constantly focusing on pushing your body hard. Okay, number three in our toolkit is to get extra rest. A tired body 
means that your immune system isn't as fired up as it could be, and you're more susceptible to getting sick. Research shows that the lack of enough sleep and the lack of good quality sleep makes us more susceptible to getting sick by dampening the immune system's defenses. So if you've been burning the candle at both ends and not getting enough sleep, fall into winter is really a good time to reset your habits and give yourself permission to pause in the evening. Make a commitment to getting at least seven to eight hours. That's really the sweet spot, especially during cold and flu season. Another thing that's really important is to pass on that night out of drinking because alcohol, as I'm going to talk about, suppresses your immune system, but it also upsets your circadian rhythm. Pass on that extra hour of TV. Look, I know it's hard to turn Ozark off. Been there, done that. But you can watch the episode the next day. Hop in the bed with a good book, a cup of tea. Just the act of sipping tea, interestingly, helps to prevent sinus infections. And shut the lights early. Good sleep is also especially important because it helps regulate our stress response better, which is also important for immunity, which brings us to the next item in our toolkit, stress less. Stress inhibits your immune system's ability to prevent and fight infection. In fact, studies have found that even vaccinations are less effective when we're chronically stressed and tired. Inadequate or poor sleep as well as chronic stress, also increase our susceptibility to infection and chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation makes us susceptible to illnesses as well as to chronic diseases. So when you have chronic inflammation, for example, in your sinus passages or your respiratory passages, you're actually more susceptible to infection. When you have chronic general systemic infection, your immune system is busy with the inflammation. Now it has to move its energy over to fighting infection. Now, I know it's easier said than done sometimes, but reducing stress and staying calm, not just carrying on, <laughs> during cold and flu season, which coincides with the stress of the holiday season too, can really make a huge difference in your immune response. So a few simple ways to reduce stress, learn how to set limits and boundaries on how much you take on and how much stress that you're exposed to. Remember that pleasure helps us to reduce stress. So make sure that you're doing things that feed and nourish your spirit and are really good for you. And add in one daily stress reduction practice. Even if it's just three minutes of meditation once or twice a day, it can really make a difference in your immune system and your emotions so that both are more resilient. And you get the added benefit of improving sleep. Okay, next up on our toolkit is to eat well. Reams of studies show us that food and beverage choices can have a massive impact on our immune health. Even just a small amount of sugar found in common bottled juices can dampen the immune system. We know that processed sugar, processed flour products, they actually deprive our body of nutrients. They require us to use up important nutrients that support our immune system to process the inflammation that's created from those. And alcohol, we've been sold a real bill of goods on alcohol, that drinking red wine, you know, one glass a day is totally healthful and totally great. That's actually not true. There is no amount of alcohol that's healthful, particularly for women. Alcohol is the only ingested food, if you will, that has been directly associated with high levels of estrogen and risk of breast cancer. 
So I'm not saying be a teetotaler, but I'm saying that alcohol consumption can really affect your immune system. On the other hand, eating a diet rich in a variety of brightly colored fruits and vegetables, from berries to greens to carrots to all the good things, provides us with the nutrients, the fiber, and phytochemicals. These different compounds that are found in plants that we often think of as things like antioxidants that our immune system needs to help us thrive and maintain optimal resilience and resistance to infection, partly by keeping our immune system itself working really well, and partly by making our respiratory and nasal passages healthy and strong so that they don't let those infections enter into our system as readily. David Neiman's work that I mentioned earlier showed that eating at least three servings of fruits daily provided protection against upper respiratory infections compared to not eating as many fruits each day. And it's really easy to get in three fruits a day, and that also counts for vegetables. And a serving of fruit can be a small handful of blueberries. It can be a half of a full-size banana. It can be an apple. So it doesn't have to be you know, a ton of food, and you can chop that apple into um, some oatmeal. You can have it with almond butter for an afternoon snack. There's any number of ways that you can incorporate fruits. And of course, again, vegetables count as serving sources. So getting three fruits and or vegetables into your diet a day is so easy. So just keep that in mind as a practice and a mantra for yourself and for your kids through the fall and winter months. As I mentioned, alcohol has its own unique contributors to disrupting our circadian rhythm. It affects our gut microbiome, which is important for immunity. It affects our sleep and it directly tamps down our immune system. So minimizing alcohol, sugar, and processed foods are really the only things that I would say are important to take out of the daily diet and emphasizing those good quality fruits and vegetables. A whole foods Mediterranean style diet is great protection against getting sick. And if you're not sure how to do that, The meal plans and recipes in my books, both The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution and Hormone Intelligence, will give you all you need to get started. And you'll also find the added plus of chapters on stress reduction, how to get better sleep, how to have a healthy gut in both of those books. There are also tons of free resources and recipes on my website, so you can always head over there. Back to pleasure and immunity, which I talked about earlier. A couple of foods that you'll love to hear are great for your immune system are green tea, which is rich in something called catechins, and dark chocolate and green tea, which are both rich in polyphenols. These actually have immune protecting effects. So adding pleasure by adding these to your diet is another plus. Let's talk about supplements and herbs to boost your immune system. There's an old saying that goes, if you treat a cold, it's gone in seven days. If you leave it alone, it's gone in a week. But recent data on natural supplements actually challenges that dictum, showing us that there are a handful of herbs and supplements that are not only effective for prevention, but may actually also shorten the duration and severity of colds or flu should you get sick with one or the other despite your best efforts at prevention, which can happen. These supplements are generally safe with most medications and medical conditions, but of course, please check with your medical provider first. So here are my top evidence-based choices for herbs and supplements with immune-boosting, cold, and flu prevention effects. I narrowed it down to those with the best modern studies so that you can really rely on their efficacy and know that what you're 
buying and taking likely has some value. One of the things that's really important to note is that if you do decide to use some of these herbs and supplements, more is not better and can even be risky. So when it comes to supplements, the doses that I share with you are those that are generally considered safe and effective. And again, I will read these out to you if you're listening and you, you know, you're somebody who remembers these things, but you can always go back and look at the associated article. So the first in my book is vitamin C. Vitamin C has a long reputation of being used for immune support. It's probably the most sold immune support supplement in the country. And there's a lot of hype around it. But that said, vitamin C does aid in the formation and function of immune cells. And it supports the health of the lining of our respiratory passages from microorganisms. So while studies are limited in humans, there are quite a lot of animal studies, there are some. A 2018 meta-analysis, meaning that a lot of different studies were looked at, those studies that met inclusion criteria for the quality that the researchers wanted to say, okay, it has to meet this minimum standard to be included in this meta-analysis were looked at. So this 2018 meta-analysis found nine clinical studies that supported the idea that vitamin C can shorten colds and lessen symptoms. Now, this study found that it was particularly effective in athletes, but it doesn't mean it's not effective in the rest of us. Daily use of vitamin C, also called ascorbic acid, has been shown to reduce the likelihood of colds and flu, reduce antibiotic use, and school absences in children. People who take vitamin C regularly can expect shorter colds by 8% in adults and 14% in children and experience slightly less severe symptoms. The thing is, it only seems to be beneficial if taken daily, preventatively. So I recommend starting it at the beginning of the season or whenever you're listening to this and continue until the end of cold and flu season. A typical dose is 500 to 1,000 milligrams daily for kids and 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams daily for adults. The max for supplementing during pregnancy is 4,000 milligrams, and that's as a supplement. It doesn't include what you get in your food, but it does include what you get in your prenatal vitamin. The next on the list is vitamin D3, which is critical for optimal immune function and is often hard to get enough of from either our food or our sunlight alone, especially in the winter. Epidemiologic studies have shown that low serum levels of vitamin D are associated with increased risk of getting upper respiratory infections. According to a 2017 large systematic review and meta-analysis, Supplementing vitamin D reduces the likelihood of upper respiratory infections, interestingly, as well as asthma. The dose for adults is 1,000 to 2,000 units daily, and for kids, 400 to 800 units daily, depending on age. And that adult amount is safe during pregnancy. Zinc is intimately involved with many aspects of immune function and maintaining resistance to upper respiratory infections. Zinc lozenges are the preferred form that's been studied for preventing infection in both the sinuses and respiratory tract, where they may also reduce inflammation. They can also be taken within 24 hours of the onset of symptoms, sucked throughout the day, to reduce cold symptoms by two to four days. Zinc acetate, which is the most common form in lozenges, may be more effective, but not all studies show that the form makes a difference, so I wouldn't worry about that. The dose depends on age. For adults, it's 40 milligrams a day total for prevention, 
For kids six to 12 months, it's two to three milligrams a day. One to three years, three milligrams a day. Four to eight years, five milligrams a day. And nine to 13, eight milligrams a day. I really encourage you to talk with your child's pediatrician or family doctor or care provider before you start supplementing your little one. And it's really important to know that zinc is terribly nauseating. So don't take it or give it to your kids on an empty stomach. I learned that the hard way. About 32 years ago, I was on a car trip with my husband and my two oldest kids. And we were on an eight-week car trip and we had stayed at someone's house and they and their kids had colds. We didn't know that when we arrived and we left and I decided to stop at a little health food store and try some zinc lozenges in my kids. You know, my poor kids, they were the guinea pigs on all this stuff. Y'all have the benefit of my 35 years of experience and this stuff being much more commonplace now, but back then it was a totally different story. So I bought some zinc lozenges. They were 15 milligrams of zinc. They were these little acerola cherry lozenges and I broke them into quarters and I gave each of the kids a quarter to suck on. And they're in the backseat of our van and we're driving. And all of a sudden, one of my kids is just like, mommy, I don't feel so good. And then, you know, the, the fateful blah, blah, vomiting, like two kids vomiting. So That was when I decided to add in the precaution of telling anyone who came to me for a consultation, make sure to have your kids have some food first and do the same for yourself. Now it's commonplace knowledge as a precaution. Also, interestingly, with zinc, and this has only been studied in adults, so you cannot use this for kids and you can't do this while you're pregnant because the dose is too high. But there has been a study that taking up to 90 milligrams a day for reducing a cold duration if you do start with symptoms of the cold is considered safe. So kind of like you might do with Tamiflu or something like that. If you start getting cold symptoms, and this hasn't been studied for the flu, but I would still do it for the flu. You just start sucking on zinc lozenges throughout the day. The studies showed that 75 to 90 milligrams reduce the duration and severity of colds. That dose is too high for children. Again, it's too high for pregnant and breastfeeding women. And it's double, 40 milligrams is considered the upper daily dose. But it has been found that if you do that for up to two weeks, it is considered safe as long as you don't meet any of the contraindication categories that I mentioned. Again, talk with your, your medical provider, but it's you know something that you could think about if you do get sick and you want to try it. Okay, next up in our toolkit of supplements and herbs is probiotics. A healthy immune system depends on gut health, and that in turn depends on the health of your microbiome and your intestinal lining, which form a major immune barrier in your body. A healthy gut has been shown to be associated with lower risk of contracting upper respiratory infections. And according to more recent research, which I actually talked about with my colleague Robin Chutkin, integrative gastroenterologist, may even be associated with reduced risk of COVID-19. So having a healthy gut is a really important foundation for healthy immunity. Various probiotics have been shown to interact with immune cells. A 2015 Cochrane review found no evidence, however, that probiotics prevent cold and flu. But another systematic review and meta-analysis of 23 randomized control trials has found that probiotics appear to decrease the incidence of respiratory tract infections in children, athletes, and the elderly. There's no data in it on otherwise healthy adults. And another interesting study found that in healthy older adults, 
taking probiotics and or prebiotics helped improve the efficacy of the flu vaccine when supplementation happened around the time of the vaccination. So small studies, very unclear which strains, which organisms actually do benefit if we you know, are going for cold and, and flu prevention. Overall, the data is mixed. But in my opinion, probiotics are safe enough for most people and the data is promising enough that I do often include a probiotic that contains a mix of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strains in my prevention toolkit for my patients susceptible to colds and flu, both adults and kids. Finally, in our toolkit is echinacea. Echinacea is an herb that has traditionally been used to support immunity. I have been using it for 40 years now, and it's been the subject of many studies. And while the data has been mixed, there is evidence that taken daily during cold and flu season, it may prevent or reduce the risk of upper respiratory infections, reduce the duration of upper respiratory infections, so how long they last, and particularly in children, may prevent upper respiratory infections from recurring, which is important, right? Your kid has a cold, then they go back to school, then they get another cold, and you keep them home again. And even more so, they get that first cold, they do okay, they get that next cold, then they get that ear infection, then they get the next cold and ear infection. And now you're talking about your pediatrician recommending serial rounds of antibiotics. So if you can use it for prevention, I think also that's worthwhile. So in my work, when I have that child who's susceptible to ear infections and colds, et cetera, during the winter, I do start using echinacea in the fall preventatively. And I like for children, echinacea glycerite. Glycerite is a tincture that's made in glycerin. Glycerin is an alcohol, but it's not alcoholic the kind you get in adult regular tinctures or that you can get a buzz off of. It's a sugar molecule that is great for extracting certain herbs and it can be used to extract echinacea. And it's sweet, so it's easy to give kids. Adults can use it as well. But for adults, I typically recommend using tincture, which I think is the most effective. Because echinacea can interact with certain medications, particularly immunosuppressive drugs, please discuss daily use with your medical provider. Um, I forgot to mention a couple of these for pregnancy and breastfeeding. So I just want to go back. The vitamin C, yes, up to the dose I mentioned. Vitamin D, yes, up to the dose I mentioned. Zinc, up to the dose I mentioned, yes, pregnancy and breastfeeding. Probiotics, yes, pregnancy and breastfeeding. Echinacea, interestingly, there was a large study done in Canada that was retrospective. So they looked at women who had used echinacea throughout the different trimesters, including all the way from the first trimester, and did find that it was not associated with any adverse outcomes in the baby. So it is considered safe for use during pregnancy. In addition, to the things that I've mentioned, there are a few traditional herbs that you can consider adding to your daily routine. Cooking with onions, garlic, turmeric, and ginger have been used historically to prevent and treat infection, and which modern science validates for antiviral and anti-inflammatory effects. Besides, they're easy to use, especially the garlic and the onions and the ginger. Turmeric can be a little messy and stains everything yellow, but they're all delicious and wonderful and easy to incorporate daily. Medicinal mushrooms. In an article on my website, I talk about the immune supporting effects of mushrooms. And I recommend a combination of medicinal mushrooms, including cordyceps, turkey tail, reishi, and maitake, for example, 
as part of a daily immune-boosting herbal protocol. And these can be used as teas, tinctures, powders, capsules, a variety of different ways. So you can read about those in that article. Medicinal mushrooms are fine while you're breastfeeding, not for use during pregnancy. Finally, I would be remiss in a complete podcast without talking to you about elderberries. Elderberries are the berry from the Sambucus plant, and it's taken preventatively at the start of symptoms. And doing so may reduce the duration and severity of symptoms of colds and flu, although the primary evidence is around flu. It's important to know that parts of the plant can be poisonous, so it's preferable to purchase reliable products that are on the market rather than make your own unless you're quite knowledgeable in plant identification, know the proper parts to use, and how to prepare it. A typical dose is one tablespoon of the syrup three times a day for adults at the onset of flu or cold symptoms and or one teaspoon three times a day for children at the onset of symptoms. I don't usually use it in children under two. If you're wanting to know more about upper respiratory symptoms and fever in children, I also have a podcast and an article that you can refer to on that. I've talked about a bunch of herbs and supplements. If you're not sure where to find these, Mountain Rose Herbs is a wonderful source for purchasing small amounts of loose organic herbs, as well as tea-making supplies. They also have tinctures and other things. If you're uncertain as to what supplement brands I consider reliable, you can go to my online formulary. You can find that over on my website. There's absolutely no obligation to make any purchases from there, and it's free to set up an account. So you can just go over there, check out the kinds of different probiotics I use for adults and kids, et cetera, et cetera, and then make your own decisions. I hope that this episode has given you food for thought and tools for health throughout this cold and flu season. I wish you a season filled with ease and wonder. I can't wait to see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time. <laughs>